turn together to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. And this morning we will be looking at the second half of this chapter from verse 9 to verse 22. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is sufficient. And the word of the Lord is authoritative. Genesis chapter 9. Chapter 6, excuse me, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word, that we would follow after you, that we would trust you, that we would obey you, that we would believe what you say. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a set of circumstances today in which most of us, if not all of us, find ourselves. We think we know it all. We think we know how the world works. And this is 
something that has always been the case. In Noah's day, they thought they knew it all. They thought they understood the workings of the world, maybe not in every detail, but they understood the basics. You know, water does not come out of the sky until it does. The world will never change until it does. We can set our own standards for what is right and wrong till we realize that's not our job. That's God's job. We see here in chapter 6, we have not gotten but a dozen pages from creation. And already the world has gotten to such a place that it needs to be nearly, but not completely, remade. This is what happens when sin reaches its course. It goes throughout the world unchecked unless God checks it. Unstopped unless God stops it. Unrepentable. Unless God grants repentance. And so this morning I would like us to see and to learn from Noah's story something that will help us in our own lives. Because you see, the world hasn't really changed that much since Noah. There are three types of the universe. Three Worlds, if you will. The world from Adam to Noah. The world from Noah to the return of Jesus Christ and glory. We are living in the world of Noah. What I would like us to see are three C's. First, a contrast. Second, a construction. And third, a covenant. A contrast, a construction, and a covenant. Let's begin then by looking at the contrast that we see in Noah's world. We see it in the state of the world and in the state of God's people. Now, what is the world like at Noah's time? Let's think back a bit to our context of the first five chapters of Genesis. God had created the earth perfectly. He created it without sin. Perfect to sustain life perfect for Adam and Eve and all of their children to fill the earth. But it was not very long before perfection was marred, and not by God, but by man. Man failed to believe God. He sided with Satan to call God a liar, to say that God was not saying the truth when He said, if you disobey Me, you will surely die. And the fall came. And then the world was divided into two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we would have thought that these two groups would march in a parallel course and that they might war, but that there would be some kind of cosmic balance. You see, many of the man-made religions of the world talk about this kind of cosmic balance, that there must be an equal amount of good and evil, a yin and a yang, a black and a white. But the Bible doesn't know of this kind of balance of good and evil. There is only war to the victory. And you see, at this point right now, evil is winning. Man's sinful tendency are taking over. And the seed of the serpent 
is expanding and exploding. And the seed of the woman is narrowing and narrowing till such at this point, the score is something like three million to eight. This is the world that Noah lived in. It was a world filled with hatred, greed, sin, corruption, and death. Our text tells us that it was a world in which men and women and children were willingly corrupt. Look with me, if you would, at verse 12. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What Moses is telling us here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not that Noah lived in a bad environment. He's not saying what happened was if Noah had just set up and better funded an educational system, things would be good. He's not even saying if they just had the right jobs and satisfaction or if they just had a little bit better family life, they'd be better. No, what Moses is telling us is the earth was filled with people who desired, loved, and ran to corruption and sin. They reveled in it. They desired it. And again, we live in the world of Noah, don't we? When we read stories of a car driving by another car and opening up and shooting children. Children being kidnapped. People being murdered. Executives who have three homes stealing from little old ladies who don't have enough food to eat. We look and everywhere we look, men and women and children run to get what they want. They don't care about others. They don't care about God. They rush headlong into sin. This was a world of willing corruption and violence. God says that they had corrupted the earth and they had filled it with violence. And here a violence is sort of a judicial lawlessness. This is not merely punching someone in the nose. This is oppression. This is the sort of worst thing that you hear about dictatorships and gulags and prisons. It's a violence that stems from hatred and malice. It was a very miserable, wicked place to be. And everywhere around it was corrupt. Do you see how Moses describes it? In verse 12, in verse 13, and in verse 17, he says, all the earth, all the earth, everything, everyone, except Noah. They had turned the creation mandate on his head. In Genesis 1, verse 28, God had commanded Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. They filled it all right with violence, misery, wickedness. But there's a contrast. Because you see, in the midst of all of this wickedness, there is a man. A man named Noah. The state of God's people is a bit different. The first thing that we see about God's people is that they are few. There is merely Noah and his family. Against all of the earth that is filled with violence, there are but eight. And only one of them, Noah, is described as righteous. 
His children are not. Even Mrs. Noah is not. It is Noah who is the righteous one. And God here is teaching us an important lesson that every one of us need to know. From executives to wives to children. Majorities do not matter. No matter what everyone else in your school is doing, it does not matter. God does not side with the majority. No matter how the people of America vote, they can vote until the cows come home that abortion should be legal. And it doesn't matter and it doesn't change God's word. Our hope is not found in majorities. There were only eight. They were very few and they were also powerless. Noah cannot change the world at all. And as a matter of fact, he's not even called to change the world. I think sometimes we need a lesson in that. We are not to give up on the culture. We are not to put our heads in the sand. But we must realize that our job is not to fix society. As Christians, we are not to make good, kinder pagans. Our job is to obey the Lord, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess His name, and to take the good news of the gospel to the world and let God worry about changing the world. He'll do it here in chapter 6, won't He? Not only are the people of God few, but not only are they powerless, but they are described perhaps best in their character, specifically with Noah, You see, Noah is described here in verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. That's again that headline word that we saw before in chapter 2. This is the book of Noah. Let me tell you about Noah, Moses says. He was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And he walked with God. And he had some kids. Four things that we know about Noah. The first is that he was righteous. Now, this describes Noah's relationship to others around him, even wicked others around him. It is a manward characteristic. Noah subscribed and conformed to the external standard that God had set forth. God says, you shall not steal. So Noah didn't steal. God says, you shall not lie. So Noah didn't lie to others. God says you shall not murder, and Noah did not hurt others. He recognized his responsibilities given to him by God, and he acted accordingly. You know, it's kind of like, in a sense, what makes a good football player. You know what they say especially about good defensive players? They know their place, their role, and their responsibility. They need to be taught not to over-pursue the ball, not to be somewhere where they're not supposed to be thinking they're going to make a difference. They need to understand the standards that are set and walk in them. That's what God had laid down for Noah. He laid down parameters by his revelation to Noah, and Noah walked in them. He treated others the way God told him to to do so. But of course, that is not the end of a godly person. 
Because you see, Noah was not only righteous, he was also blameless in his generation. Now, this doesn't mean that Noah never made a mistake, never sinned, never was angry, never did anything wrong. It says he was blameless, that is, he acted with integrity toward God. Not only was he righteous manward, he was blameless Godward. He acted with integrity and wholeness of heart, and he was alone among his contemporaries. Do you imagine how hard that would be? Some of you do. Some of you have caved into the pressure of your peers. You've laughed at jokes you shouldn't have. You've treated your wife in a way in which you shouldn't have. You've talked about your husband in a way you shouldn't have. You've treated your parents in a way you shouldn't have just because, well, your friends do. Or that famous phrase, well, everybody does that. Not those who walk in integrity. Not those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Not those who have a Godward relationship. Noah is proof positive that we are not to go along with the crowd. If there was ever an opposite crowd, it was Noah. Noah could point to what Moses is saying and say, you know, everybody else does violence. Well, you're right. It says everybody. You still can't, Noah. Walk with me in integrity. Because you see, that's the third thing we hear about Noah, that he walked with God. He had communion with God. His inside and his outside were the same. And this, beloved, is a real challenge for us. Because it is very easy for the visible church of Jesus Christ to live lives that are different on the inside and the outside. To appear so much better than the people out there in the short skirts and the tight pants. So much better than the people in our neighborhood who use words that we never use in public. So much better than those who act a certain way. And when in reality our hearts are places where the same sin is found. You see, we are called... Not just to an external conformity with God's law, but an internal conformity with God's law. And the only way that we can do that is to have God change our world. It's as much of a miracle to change one heart as it is to send a massive flood. God has that kind of power, doesn't he? So this morning, if you are thinking about this, you must trust the Lord Jesus Christ that He can change your heart by the same kind of miracle. That He who conquered death can conquer your sin. The kind of sin that you refuse to tell your spouse because you're afraid of what will happen. The kind of sin that you're afraid to tell your parents because you're afraid of what the result will be. Noah finally was a family man. Like you and like me, he was someone committed to his family. His righteousness, his blamelessness, his walk with God encouraged him in his family rather than discouraged him. Well, the second thing that we see here this morning is a construction. Of course, that is sometimes the main thing that we see in this text. You can't look at chapter 6 and not be slapped in the face with a really, really big Boat, an ark. You see, first we see God's decision. 
God has to take drastic measures. He looks out and he sees that the earth has been ruined and it has been ruined by people. It is corrupt through them. And he decides he must do something about this. This word for corrupt is the same word that we get destroyed or ruined from. You see, there's, there's a parallel here. Because they have ruined the world, God will ruin them. Because they have destroyed His creation, God will destroy them. And He will open up the sky. You see, this word for flood here is not the normal word for flood. Some of you think you know what a flood is, right? When there's six inches of water in your home, or those of you from up north in your basement, you've even had one of these little machines called a sump pump to pump water out from the basement. That's not the word for flood here. It's a totally different Hebrew word. And in the New Testament, a totally different Greek word. This is a cataclysm. That's the word in Greek. This is not just some trickle-down rain for a while. It's not even just hard Texas rain for a while. This is God opening up the expanse of the heavens and dumping an ocean on the world. God's serious. Because you see, God is in control here. He looks down, He sees, and God acts. God is an acting God. You see, we disbelieve that. Even if we think God sees, we think He won't act. God may see me surfing those channels on the Internet, but He won't do anything about it. Oh, God sees me taking those couple of things from my office supply chest. But, you know, he's not, He can't be concerned with that. He's not going to do anything. He must be busy. No. You need to know that God not only sees, but He acts. He brings judgment. He punishes. He acts with finality. And you need to also know that God is just. Because man has corrupted the earth, God will ruin them. But the other thing we need to know about God is that God is merciful. You see, we look at the flood and we take the wrong angle. We look at that and we say, how could God possibly destroy all these people? When really what we need to ask is, how could God possibly save these eight people? Because you see, they deserve death too. But God is merciful. He's gracious and He keeps His promises. And He will keep His promises for you the same as He kept them for Noah. God is merciful. And he gives Noah a task. He says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And the first thing he says is, I want you to build it out of gopher wood. And if you're like me, you read that and you wonder, I know woodchucks chuck wood and gophers, they've got the cheeks. Do they have wood? What is that? No, it doesn't have anything to do with chipmunks or gophers or any kind of small rodents. It's actually in Hebrew. You ready for this word? The word in Hebrew is gopher. That's where it comes from. It's very likely, now you all know this, it's very likely cypress trees. We know that here. Some of you have them in your yards. Noah is to take these cypress trees and he's to build a very big ark. A cubit 
is 18 inches. It's about from your elbow to the tip of your fingers in Noah's day. 18 inches. So this ark is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It is huge. It is about double long as the entirety of the front of our property. It's a very big, I was going to call it a ship, but actually it looks much more like a coffin. That's the way it looks. It would have displaced 43,000 tons. It would have had 1.4 million cubic feet inside it. It would have had a 95,000 square foot deck. Now imagine that. For many of you, that means that the deck is something between 30 and 40 times the size of your house. It's humongous. Now, it's not seagoing, though. We'll see in weeks to come that it's not intended to be launched. It's not intended to sail a certain place because God is going to bring the ocean up around it. And it's built with rooms. And the interesting thing is the rooms in Hebrew are actually called nests. It's set up for the animals. It is covered in what is called pitch. And the word for pitch here is the same word that we get atonement from. It is covered over to be preserved. This word for ark is only used one other place in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It describes the bushel that Moses was placed in to be saved from Pharaoh. See, it's not about the size. It's about the purpose here. The purpose of the ark is to save God's people. So God says to Noah, you must build this really big ark. But he gives him another job that we don't see front and center here in Genesis 6, but we learn of from the Apostle Peter. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we hear that Noah was a herald or a preacher of righteousness. That is, the 120 years that Noah spent building the ark, what Noah did was preach. Repentance, judgment, God is coming. Now, can you imagine that? Some of you get tired of talking to your family members after a while. Get tired of talking to your neighbors. You think they'll never come around. Imagine if you were building an ark for 120 years, over and over again, pounding the nails. Repent. Judgment's coming. Sure, Noah, sure. Sure, repent. I'm telling you, judgment is coming. No, you're nuts, Noah. Go ahead and put some more nails in the ark. Work some more, longer. You've got to repent. Judgment is coming now. And you see, to the world around him, even the cadence of the pounding would dull their senses. We become dull to the judgment of God, don't we? We think we can live forever. How many of you think the Lord Jesus Christ could come back now? There's an old story about Robert Murray McChain, the greatest Scottish theologian, pastor of the 19th century. He asked a group around him, "When do you, do you think the Lord Jesus Christ will come back tonight? And they said, I think not. Do you think he'll come back tonight? I, I think not. 
Then he turned to the verse that says, the Lord Jesus Christ returns at a time that you think not. Are you prepared to meet Jesus Christ today? Not tonight. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Today. Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. We need to hear from the Lord. The last thing we see very briefly is God's covenant that God has established. You see, God establishes a relationship with Noah. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you. And that lets us know that the covenant was already existing. It was already in existence. God wants to be able to relate with us on His terms. He will establish the covenant, but it will be personal. It's with you, Noah, the singular. There's also a sense of mutuality about this covenant. God gives Noah a task and Noah must perform it. That is building the ark. But the real response that we must have is the response of Noah, and that is the response of faith. You see, when God makes a covenant with us, He commands us to respond by faith. And that looks like this, briefly. Three things. Believing, trusting, and obeying. Noah believed God. Look with me here. God tells Noah, in verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Why, God? What are you going to do? What what do I want to build an ark for? Okay, I guess I will. And then later on we see in verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood. Do you see that? Noah believed God before God gave him the play-by-play. He trusted that God knew what he was doing. That's what we must do with our lives. And even if he said, I'm going to, be a fl- going to bring a flood, that would be unbelievable. It had never happened before. And you say, well, you know, people should have believed him. Do you believe that the earth will be destroyed by fire? The whole world has never been destroyed by fire before. Peter says that's coming. Do you believe God? Do you act accordingly? Because that's what God says in his word. Noah trusted God. He trusted that he would be spared. He trusted that God would preserve him and his family. And he went into the ark. And we'll see next week that God shuts him up in the ark. Noah not only believed God, he acted on it and he trusted him. And then finally, Noah obeyed God. Do you see that in verse 22? Noah did this. He did the things that were easy that God told him. No, I'm sorry. Noah did all that he felt was a wise suggestion of the things that God had suggested there. Isn't that sometimes how we live our lives? Noah did all that God commanded him. Every single thing. He believed. And he trusted Because of that, he obeyed. He didn't question. He didn't argue. He didn't negotiate. He did. 
Moms, don't you wish sometimes that's the way your kids acted? They just did? Didn't negotiate? Didn't question? Dads, don't do it with God. Don't question or negotiate. Finally, then, we are called not to change the world. We are called to follow after Noah, to believe, to trust, and to obey. God has already done all of the hard work. We are called to rest in Him. Because, you see, after all, that's what Noah's name means, doesn't it? Rest. We are called to rest in the Lord and what He has said, and He will preserve us. Even in the midst of His judgment for sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have given to us this this text of Noah. We thank You, Lord, that You have granted us Your Word, that we might hear of Your will and we might hear of our need for faith and repentance. Lord, we ask this morning that You would strengthen us, that You would point us toward the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might find in Him our all and all. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.